Welcome to Apologetics from the Attic, the show that seeks to teach and defend the Christian faith in a post-Christian culture. And now, broadcasting from an attic in an undisclosed location somewhere outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, here is your host, Dave Lewis. Hello and welcome to another edition of Apologetics from the Attic. How's everybody doing today? So today I wanted to review an article that appeared on pathos.com, their website. And I saw this, this popped up in the um, Anglican Church in North America uh, website um, or Facebook page. So this gentleman's name is Clint Schneckloth. Schneckloth, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Clint Schneckloth. And once again, pathos.com. Uh, the title of this post, this article he wrote, is So You Don't Agree With Everything in the Creed? You're in good company. Now, um, if you're new to this program, um, I want to pull up this graphic if you're watching. <clears throat> and, you know, I this was episode one. So if you want to go back and watch episode one, this is foundational for my apologetic in terms of dealing with, with these issues. So... We have Catholic with a small c, Evangelical, and Reformed, and I put them in layers. So I don't want to go back over it, but this article we're going to review is going after Catholic doctrine with a small c. Um, so we should all, whether we are Arminian or Calvinist or Pentecostal or Baptist or Presbyterian um, or even a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox for that matter, uh, we should all be concerned about this article that we're about to review because this article is going after the heart and soul of Catholic universal, small c Catholic faith and going after the creeds. Um, so let's see what he says here and, and go over this because uh, this is going to be very instructive uh, for the defense of the Christian faith in this culture. Now, as far as I can tell, I think I read this somewhere, I didn't research it fully, um, but Mr. Uh, Schneckloth is a minister in the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Um, and if you're not uh, familiar with the alphabet soup that is uh, Lutheranism and Presbyterianism uh, and different denominations that have all their different letters, uh, this is the ELCA, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, that'll come up because the ELCA has an interesting history um, of where it originated from, uh, from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and uh, the battle with liberalism that happened at uh, the St. Louis Seminary, Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, in St. Louis, Missouri. But let's, let's jump into this and then we'll, we'll make some comments along the way. So, once again, the title. So you don't agree with everything in the creed? You're in good company. Provocative title, of course. Um, very provocative. So if you don't, you're in good company because other people don't agree. And we'll see. Now, he, he opens this way because, you know, he's trying to say this is, don't misrepresent what I'm doing here. Uh, but I think we're going to see that it's exactly what he's doing. He's What he's claiming he's not doing and he's actually doing. So first sentence. This is not, not in all caps, this is not a progressive post repudiating the ancient creeds of the church, apostles, Nicene, etc. So remember, back to my chart, there's three uh, main, what, they, what are called ecumenical creeds, 
the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. So these creeds crystallize and represent what was believed at all times and all places for the first uh, you know, 10 centuries of the church in terms of ecumenical councils. Now remember, there was an east-west split. So the last ecumenical council to be held happened uh, around, um, I don't actually know that. <clears throat> it's good that I can admit I don't know things, right? Um, when was the last ecumenical council held? I don't know. Uh, but there was a point, there's a point now where we can't hold an ecumenical council because the East and West split. And of course, uh, Protestantism comes out as a further split in the Western church. But anyway, the Apostles Nicene and Athanasian Creed are the three creeds that are historic Christianity. So let's go back to the article. Instead, so this is not a repudiation of the ancient creeds, he says, back to the article. Instead, it's an attempt to put doctrinal creedal formulation in their proper place. So so let's see what um, Mr. Schneckloth thinks that the proper place of doctrinal creedal formula is. Even more importantly, it is an answer to one of the most frequent questions I get asked as a pastor. Can I be part of your church if I don't believe everything Christians believe? So this is interesting. So you know, he's having the experience where people are coming to him saying, can I be part of your church even if I don't believe everything Christians believe? So we will see that um, the devaluing of church membership has a lot to do with the problem of this article. And it's a problem in the body of Christ as a whole, both in mainline denominations and in evangelical denominations, that church membership has been degraded. Let's start by being clear. Back to the article. We are all individuals, and there is absolutely no homogeneous belief system, even in tightly knit communities of faith. We all mix and blend what we believe as people of faith with other types of faith commitments. So this is the postmodern idea that, well, you got to understand, like, we all have different commitments. There's no homogeneous belief system. Uh, we all blend and mix what we believe, which, I mean, okay, there's truth to that. But my personal experience of that should not impact the word of God and the truth of the Christian faith. The truth of the, the, in other words, you cannot apply this sentence. We all mix and blend what we believe as people of faith with other type of faith commitments. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. And the church doesn't seek to do that. The church seeks to say, what is the objective truth of God's word, his written word? And of course, as James White always says, um, a lot of this begins and ends with the highest view of Scripture. If you don't have the highest view of Scripture, that is Theonoustos, God breathed, that the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, is the Word of the Holy Living God revealed to us, speaking to us, inerrant, infallible. Once you start to lose that, uh, then there's, there's really no point in going further because then you will end up saying, well, you know, we don't really know exactly what the truth is. We have, we, we can, we can go around the edges of truth, but you know, it, it's, 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 it's more of a personal conviction thing. What the truth is. Um, next sentence. So, so, so my point there is it sounds to me that sentence, those two sentences sound a little bit like a subjectivism. You know, we all blend our beliefs. Which is true, but see, the point of maturing as a Christian and pressing into the Christian tradition and interacting with the scripture is to not be that way. 
is to have a coherent, consistent, full-orbed, biblical, historical Christian commitment coming from the Word of God. And then, of course, the creeds help guide that as well, because the creeds represent the, use, the move of the Holy Spirit. It's not theonoustos. The creeds are not God-breathed. The creeds are not inerrant and infallible, yet they uh, represent the interaction of those who come before us, guided by the Holy Spirit, in especially matters of controversy, working out the um, outline of the Christian faith, is what the creed is. Some of these faith commitments are sublimated or subconscious, he continues. We might say we believe in grace, for example, but then also believe in a punitive governmental incarceration system. Or we might say we trust God, but actually we trust our pension plan. Well, okay, so he's already showed his hand here. Um, you know, I don't want to read too much into this, but that sounds like a liberal, um, progressive, uh, political uh, ideology creeping in there. So what is a punitive governmental incarceration system? Um, you know, well, we should let people out of jail. Well, <clears throat> I would agree with that in certain situations um you know people who are in jail for minor drug offenses uh, that get lengthy sentences i think we should reform that system um, but grace is not antithetical to a society putting people in jail for hurting and harming others uh, grace is not even opposed to the death penalty we don't have to get into that but uh, that is not uh, so if I go around saying, well, I think that the government should incarcerate people punitively when they murder, rape, kidnap, steal, um, harm other people, harm society. Well, you don't believe in grace. That's, that's, oh, no, no. Um, or we may say we trust God, but we actually trust our pension plan. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, materialism is a sin and it's a problem and I shouldn't be trusting and putting my ultimate hope in uh, money and in a pension plan. I agree with that. But I think, you know, there's a, there's an, it's, it's, it's betraying an agenda there. Okay. Next, next paragraph. In other words, anyone who has given you the impression that doctrinal standards or creedal formulations are rigid standards by which we can define who is in and out of religious community is feeding you a line of crap. Okay. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's pretty uh, clear about that. Um, but this is where, okay, this is where he goes wrong. The bottom line is the creeds, especially, okay. The apostles creed was a thumbnail sketch of the Christian faith for candidates for baptism, but the apostles creed, um, was also a test of orthodoxy, but the Nicene creed is certainly a, rigid standard by which we can define who is in and who is out. That is what the Nicene Creed was created for, to expel the Arians. Um, if you understand the history of the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed was to uh, define the boundaries of confessing God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father through whom all things were made. Because Arius and his party were saying that Jesus Christ is a created being. He is not uh, one with God in terms of sharing his identity as creator. Jesus is to be placed in the category of creation, not creator. And that is where they took a stand and said no. And they created a creed 
And if you study the history of the word homoousios, which is a extra biblical word, it's not a biblical word, but um, in, in the, the, the one volume of the second seven ecumenical councils behind me, he writes about, um, there's a footnote in there that's pretty interesting where um, Athanasius and his, his group who were at the Council of Nicaea, they tried to use all biblical wording in the formulation of the creed. But every time they picked a biblical word to represent who Christ was, the Arian party would wink and nod and say, oh yeah, we could, we could, we, we could, uh, we could sign that. We could subscribe to that. We could, we could make that work, you know, smuggling their false doctrine in. So they, they chose the word homoousios, um, Jesus is one being with the Father, and the Arians couldn't, they, they, they were like, this is crazy, you can't, that, that's not true, that's not true. And they said, oh, that, there we go, there's the word we need to exclude. The Nicene Creed is a document that was written to exclude the Arians. And yes, it's a rigid standard. And yes, we need to define who is in and who is out. And to call that a line of crap is very interesting because that's what the creeds are for so you know this is this is we're getting into the mind of protestant liberalism here which does not want to have any rigid standard which whether this is pursued consistently i highly doubt it most churches have rigid standards now if you want to reject historic orthodoxy and reject fundamentalism, if you want to call it that, or reject a, a type of Christianity that takes seriously uh, doctrinal commitments that stem from the scriptures, um, I guess you can reject that as being too rigid. Uh, but every church has a standard when it comes down to it. You just have to, some of the, in the more liberal churches, you got to push a little harder to find what those standards are. Um, okay, then he says this classic limerick, we're in a classic limerick shared recently by calling, I'm a clergyman whose name is Mead, with a wife and a family to feed. I desire a post where they reverence the host and believe at least half of the creed. Okay, so, um, yeah, I was, <clears throat> so you got to understand my background is that we keep going. So I, I bring a perspective here because I was a part of the Episcopal Church. I found myself at the Episcopal Church. Uh, it was God's providence. I didn't choose to go there. It was part of God's providence um, in my journey when I uh, graduated and left the Teen Challenge program back in 2002. And in God's province, I found my way to a Episcopal church in Pittsburgh. And this was in 2003. And if you know your history of the Episcopal church, it was around that time, 2003 into 2004, that Gene Robinson became nominated as the first openly gay practicing homosexual uh, bishop. To, uh, he was a priest that was elected bishop. And that broke the thing wide open. So I'm, I'm familiar with, um, you know, liberalism from that perspective because I was around priests and clergy and I was around the people from the Episcopal Church and the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America is at the same place. The Episcopal Church is much more progressive than the ELCA. There's no question. Uh, the Episcopal Church is always on the front lines of uh, uh, heresy and rejecting orthodoxy. So, okay, he continues. So what is the place of the creed? Then he says, creeds are not fences. They are better understand as touchstones, guideposts. Um, yes and no. Yes, can, can, we, can we look at the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, 
And can I get with another Christian and say, let's look at the touchstones of our faith. So let's look at the Apostles' Creed together and see where we agree, see where we can find common ground. This is a touchstone or guidepost that can guide our discussion. Sure, I'm not going to deny that. But that is not the nature of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene or Athanasian Creed. They are fences. They are barriers. They are defining documents that represent the consensus of the early church. And remember, especially the Nicene Creed and Athanasian Creed, they are born out of controversy. They are born out of debate. They are born out of ejecting heretics. Yes, we need to use the term heretics. Okay. Now, does that mean we're mean and nasty? No. I mean, this, and this is part of the problem. This is, this is, are there mean and nasty people who represent orthodoxy and represent doctrinal um, commitments that need to be upheld and church discipline needs to be exercised on people who go around actively, openly rejecting them? Yeah, there's mean, nasty people like that. So, and you know, they need to be rebuked. So I'm not going to deny that, but um, we're not going to allow people who are ungracious to then tell, well, we don't even want anything to do with that because that's what ends up happening. So in our church, he continues, nobody takes a test where they have to confess they believe in the virgin birth. I'll come back to this in one moment, or even in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to be part of our community. So it's interesting that he picks these two topics. I mean, you know, I, I, I could expect, um, other articles where, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession and um, these detailed reform confessions we think are ridiculous and they, they call it, they, they make you, you know, confess and, and detail way too many things about the Christian faith. You know, there's, there's that, or there's that uh, argument out there that says us as Calvinists, our confessions are way too detailed and it's, it's ridiculous. So, you know, but that's not what he's doing. He's, he's going after central things, the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ. So uh, we'll see what he does with that in a moment uh, because he ends up denying them or at least seriously putting them into doubt. Okay. Now, so, so he's saying, so he's saying we, we, no one has to take a test. Okay. Well, Historically, churches have their members at least affirm basic Christian beliefs to become members. Now, if you if someone wants to be a visitor, if someone wants to check out your church and start to interact with the fellowship, um, you know, that's of course we don't say, uh, you, you know, do you believe all these things? The first conversation, we're going to take you, we're going to have coffee in the lobby and quiz you on your doctrinal commitments. Of course not. But um, and this is the problem with the evangelical church in general, is their church membership. And is the church membership strong enough to be uh, perceived by visitors that, well, there's the members who are committed to this church doctrinally, theologically, um, of course, giving and, 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 and you know, attending and, and being committed to being disciples and bringing themselves under the authority of the eldership, um, is that a thing that the visitor perceives very early on? Or is it just this open-ended, well, you, you know, no one has to commit. Uh, we're just a very fluid community. You can come and go as you please. No one's going to 
uh, bother you and, and look into your personal life and look into your personal convictions. Well, that's a problem because the church is supposed to be a place where there is discipline, uh, there is accountability. Um, now, can that be distorted? Can that be used to control people? Absolutely. So we got to look out for that. But um, he's basically saying, we don't even have, no one, no one in my church even needs to say they believe in the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, you know, this is classic Protestant liberalism, it ends up being. Um, next, okay. Now, do we say out loud the creeds that contain these beliefs? Yes. Okay, so this is a liturgical tradition, the ELCA, the Lutheran Church. I'm sure that they say the Apostles and or Nicene Creed every Sunday, probably. Because um, it's a liturgical church that has a, a book that um, outlines written out prayers and, and different and confessions of sin, etc., etc. Actually, the Lutheran confessions of sin are actually very written very well. Some of the best confessions of sin liturgically that are out there. Um, if it's the standard Lutheran stuff that's historic. Okay, he continues. Does everyone, even the pastor, have an identical and orthodox understanding of what those creedal statements mean? No. Okay, so this is where the creed, does it have an objective meaning? So does language have objective meaning? And this is where postmodernism comes in and says, no, actually it doesn't. Uh, we need to deconstruct these things. Um, now, of course, no one has an identical understanding. Now, orthodox understanding, um, as a minister, okay, everyone, okay, when we say, does everyone have an identical orthodox understanding? Well, if you're talking about the common, uh, you know, church attenders or people who are inquiring, of course they don't. But the pastors should. I mean, part of the job of, the, the local eldership, and if you're part of a bigger denomination, this is why I like Baptist ecclesiology, because the, the local church is the highest expression of the church. But if you have these bigger uh, denominations, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, um, isn't it's the job of the Presbytery, it's the job of the session, it's the job to, to make sure the pastors have an orthodox understanding of the creedal statements. Absolutely. And if you say that there's pastors who do not have an orthodox understanding of the creedal statements, that's a major problem. You've departed from Catholic small c Christianity at that point. Okay, now he goes to the virgin birth. He continues. Now back to the virgin birth as one example. Quite simply, that item in the creed came up because St. Jerome translated the Hebrew and Greek texts into Latin. The term for maiden in those languages he translated as virgin in Latin. Subsequent theologians, chief among them Augustine, made much of Mary's virgin status, and so it became a core creedal commitment. But the canon itself, the scriptures, focused more on her maidenhood rather than her virginity. No. I'm sorry, sir. This is very deceptive here. First of all, the, the, <coughs> the idea that Mary was a virgin, meaning she never had sex with a man, and Jesus Christ was conceived in her by the power of the Holy Spirit without human sperm, let's just get straight about it, without the human sperm, it was a miraculous conception, did not come into the Christian tradition or Christian teaching because Jerome made the Latin Vulgate. I'm sorry. This is really bad church history. This is really bad oversimplification, and it's just dangerous, okay? So what, is, <clears throat> what are you saying, sir? Are you saying that Mary was not a virgin? <clears throat> are you saying that Jesus was conceived in the same way as everyone else? Are you saying that he was not born of a virgin? Um, are you saying she was merely a maiden? 
Um, this is this is this is the stuff because you know remember Protestant liberalism denies the supernatural. So Protestant liberalism is so worried about getting along with the culture. So the culture in our secular age would say the virgin birth. That's one of those just unprovable, unscientific things. And you're a oaf and a caveman and an idiot if you believe that kind of stuff. Because it can't be scientifically verified. We all know that when someone gets pregnant, it's because sperm hit an egg. And there's no way that someone could get pregnant without that happening. So that's it's ridiculous. That's supernaturalism. That can't be proven. So we need to reject it. <clears throat> and Protestant liberalism goes, well, yeah, we don't believe that either. I mean, it's an article of religious belief and people can, can believe it religiously and theologically, but it's clearly not scientific and it clearly didn't happen. Uh, so you know, th this is where this article just goes off the rails right here. I mean, it was kind of on the rails up to this point, but now it's totally off the rails. And then I love how individuals such as uh, this gentleman, you know, drop that, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth. Take that for what it's worth. It's worth nothing, sir, because it's it's very, very uh, terrible. The, 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 the apostolic fathers and the church fathers all believed in the virgin birth of Christ. They didn't say, oh, well, you know, she, she could have been a maiden. She could have been this. And, and by the way, it's not the issue isn't just what the term for maiden means. And that, that's a classic liberal canard that goes into Isaiah and says, um, you know, that that Hebrew word can mean maiden. Read the text of the Gospels. When the angel comes to Mary and says, you will conceive a son, it's very clear that Mary's issue is, well, wait a minute, I'm not married. I've never known a man. How will this happen? And he's clear the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you. And that's how you will become pregnant. It's not through a man. It's through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so anyway, so, so this is, you know, this is some basic denial or at least questioning. See, this is what we do, right? We, we ask we just ask questions and we and we put things out there. But this is pretty pretty straightforward. Listen, the reason why we believe in the virgin birth is not because the Bible teaches is because Jerome translated uh, the Latin Vulgate. Which, uh, no. Another example, he continues, when we say that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, what precisely do we mean? Theologians and people of faith have concluded all things regarding it, and of all these are potentially fair interpretations of belief in the resurrection, all the way from Feuerbach's notion of the resurrection as a kind of wish fulfillment, to my more traditional commitment as a pastor that the tomb was empty, the disciples met Jesus after his death, and beyond that it's rather difficult to know what precisely happened in the resurrection. Okay, <clears throat> so Feuerbach, um, you know, one of the princes of protestant liberalism um so it's legitimate to say in the christian tradition that the resurrection of christ was simply wish fulfillment on the part of the apostles that he actually didn't rise from the dead um so that is that's a potentially fair interpretation of belief in the resurrection no sir no sir that is not a potentially fair interpretation i'm sorry that is incorrect and then here's here's what's interesting you know this is this postmodern mushy mishy mashy thing um but he personally as he says he has the traditional commitment that the tomb was empty and the disciples met jesus after his death okay 
But then he then but then he 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 takes with one hand what he gives with the other. But then he says, and beyond that, beyond the fact that he the tomb was empty and the disciples met him, it's rather difficult to know what precisely happened in the resurrection. What, what are you talking about? We have material in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell us about what happened in the resurrection. How is it difficult to know? So the res so the virgin birth and the resurrection to this man are. You know, there's different interpretations of them. You know, we don't we don't have to we don't have to hold anybody's feet to the fire and say Jesus was born of a virgin and he rose from the dead bodily, and that's a historical fact that happened in history, and it's a supernatural event, uh, the greatest supernatural event: Jesus conquering death in his physical body raised. Well, you know, those things, you know, there's different, there's broad interpretations for both. We don't have to hold people's feet to the fire. That's the point of this article. And it's just like, man, this is really just, just, no, this has to be resisted. There's no way this is an okay uh, trajectory here. He continues, in other words, the creeds become a kind of sign, a guidepost, a touchstone around which we can do a lot of interesting theological work and people of quite diverse faiths can consider and examine them. In the church? Okay, so if you want to do some weird like coffee shop type outreach thing where you're gathering in unbelievers and people who are skeptics and use the creeds as a guide, signpost, a, a, you know, touchstone and where we can, we can consider and examine them together from diverse faiths and do interesting theological work. Okay, fine. I mean, whatever. I mean, but we're talking about the, the life of the, the, the church, the the called out ones, the set apart ones, the ones who have have repented and believed and trusted in Christ, there is no way that this language is acceptable. Within the church, and you as a pastor, sir, who are responsible for people's souls, th this is not about, well, you know, we have these signs and guideposts, but we're really not going to push anybody to have any convictions. Sir, you, you are abandoning your task as a pastor and a shepherd of the flock. Okay, so then he asked the question that, that people, uh, you know, these, these rhetorical questions keep us what, what he's thinking. But can we just reject the creeds altogether? Question, he says. I'd say no. Okay, well, at least, <laughs> at least he's not advocating for throwing the creeds out. I don't, although, you know, here's what's interesting, though. At least in a liturgical tradition, tradition like the Anglicanism and Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and Lutheranism, there is a reciting of the creeds that happens every Sunday. You'll never hear a creed in pop evangelicalism. You'll very go to a big evangelical seeker-sensitive church. You will never hear the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed or Athanasian Creed read ever. And if and if if anyone even mentions, oh, that's that's Catholic, that's Catholic, that's Roman Catholic. We don't believe that around here. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean you don't believe it? We don't believe in the we don't believe in the Apostles' Creed. That's a Catholic thing. Like, wait a minute. That's uh, that's historic Christianity. But anyway, you know the church history, uh, comprehension of the evangelical church in America. You know, Billy Graham started is when church history starts. And even sadly, most people don't even know who Billy Graham is anymore. Um, church history starts with Rick Warren, and even then, uh, and anyway. But so at least in his tradition, I mean. To, re to reject the creeds would be controversial even in the liberal ELCA because it's part of the liturgy that many people who've grown up in that church for 70 or 80 years, there's 80-year-old men and women who go to church every Sunday in the ELCA who have recited the creed every Sunday for 80 years. 
so they can't really reject it. But in the evangelical church, it's functionally rejected because it's never even you know recited in a worship service. It's just five worship songs and uh, happy clappy. You know, there's not even any scripture reading sometimes, which is which is sad. Um, I don't find that helpful. So okay, we he's not going to just reject the creeds. We reject. Because in rejecting the creeds, we reject the history of the development of Christian doctrine as well, and that's deeply problematic. Okay, good. Good, because that is what the creeds represent. Um, they're more than that. They're also a uh, representation of the triumph of orthodoxy against heretic, heretical views. And that's why we honor the creeds, and that's why we place ourselves under them, uh, because they represent the triumph of, of true biblical interpretation. Even the scripture itself has a history of development and nobody just believes the Bible. Now to, to put the scripture in the same category as the creeds in terms of they both have a history of development and this is, this is sliding into Protestant liberal views of scripture itself. Um, and nobody just believes the Bible. It's far more complex than that. Maintaining the creeds is one way of maintaining our attention to a simple reality. What we believe develops and shifts over the centuries. No. The creeds represent the settled teaching of the church. Did, did it develop? Yes, it developed in the heat of controversy. It developed with heretics infiltrating the church and the church having to deal with, the leadership of the church having to deal with these heretics and the creeds are uh, represent a response to them. Okay, he continues, Today in the 21st century, especially in Western culture, we have different movements. Some people of faith are shifting to a more rigid fundamentalist, fundamentalist views. You have to believe in a certain way about the fundamentals. Well, it's not that some people are shifting toward it. It's this, that is the, um, the tradition of Christianity as a whole. Now, you know, fundamentalism uh, can be used in a negative way, which it is. And, and uh, you know, I, I can use it in a very negative way. Oh, that's very fundamentalistic of you. But just so some of you, if you don't know this, the, the term fundamentalist is a, uh, refers to as a noun um, is a series of books called the fundamentals that was put out in the or what is early 1900s um, where they were addressing this protestant liberalism from the 1800s and the fundamentals things like the virgin birth i mean there were articles written by uh, conservative orthodox um, biblically sound scholars who are saying the virgin birth is biblical and it's true um, so that's what the, the, and the those set of books. I used to have a set. I don't. I I didn't. I should have kept them. I found a set at a at a seminary library that was being sold or given out for free, and it was the set called the Fundamentals, and it was a really old copy of them. Uh, but that's what they had. They had articles in them about uh, these things. So that's what fundamentals mean and fundamentalistic. Um, so, but this is what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith? And and if you can't. Okay, because many times, you know, I'm a Calvinist, so in my camp, oh, the fundamentals of the Christian faith are the five points and the Westminster, the entirety of the Westminster standards, and people don't like that, which, okay, I, I get that, but I, I'm all about that, personally. I think that that comprehensive view especially needs to be placed upon ministers, um, whether that needs to be placed upon the laity. For example, Presbyterianism has never said that a lay person or a regular church member has to subscribe whole cloth to the Westminster standards, but certainly the ministers do. Certainly the elders do. They have to. Um, get to believe in a certain way about the fundamentals. Well, yeah. I mean, let's 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 ease new Christians into this stuff. But 
pastor shouldn't be eased into it. If you're going to take that oath before Almighty God to say you're going to be a shepherd and flock of God's people, you better know what the fundamentals are. You better know what you believe. You better know what the historic Christian faith is and know how to banish away strange doctrine. I'm quoting from the Anglican prayer book that the, the ordination vows and the minister has to take. You better banish strange doctrine away from the church and chase it away and protect the sheep from the wolves. And if you're saying, well, now, I mean, you know, we all believe different things. You're not doing your job as a shepherd. I'm sorry. Other people of faith are moving in another more capacious, capacious, I need Doug Wilson's help here, capacious direction, seeing their own tradition as one among many. In my opinion, some take this a bit too far. Okay, I'm glad he admits this. Relativizing their own faith in comparison to other faiths and assuming or presuming all faiths lead to the same thing. So I'm glad he at least admits, you know, they take that a bit too far. Uh, but sir, I would say that this is the direction and trajectory you're headed in. Uh, because up above you were like, well, the virgin birth and the resurrection, you know, there's different interpretations that are valid, people of different faiths. No, sir, there are not. The virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ are core commitments that, the church Catholic and our ancestors and our forebears in the faith, many who sealed those beliefs in their blood, okay, who are the great cloud of witnesses, expect us to continue to maintain and fight because they're taught in Scripture. And if we just say, oh, well, they, you know, they, there's different interpretations, we are betraying those who have gone before us, and we are betraying the Word of God, in my opinion. Uh, so, you know, but this, I, I agree that he, I, I like that he's at least acknowledging, well, you know, it's not true that all faiths lead to the same thing. Um, just pure pluralism um, and pure inclusivism. He seems to be resisting just coming out and being the full-blown inclusivist, um, that all faiths really are pointing to the same reality. I myself don't go that far, at least in part because I find it somewhat presumptuous about those other faiths. But I also but also because I'm a Christian who loves Jesus and other humans, and I find one of the best ways to love other humans is to remain deeply situated within my own tradition while open to learning about others and myself through comparison and sharing of life and mission. Once again, um, could I put a positive spin on that sentence and say, outside the church, um, in interactions with people that I work with, interactions with people in a coffee shop, interactions with people on the street, interactions with people in everyday life. Um, should I love other humans by learning about others and myself through comparison and sharing life and mission? Sure. I mean, yeah, let's love others. Let's, let's be open. Let's not be judgmental. Let's not right away just say, oh, what do you believe? And just, just go after them. Um, and make them feel terrible because they don't believe what we believe. Of course, that's we shouldn't do that. But see, the, the problem is, sir, you're a pastor, and I want to know the people that are within your purview as a shepherd. Is this how you deal with them? Now, of course, you should be loving and compassionate to those you are shepherding if you're a pastor. But the bottom line is, um, we are to um, bring people to the knowledge of the full knowledge of Jesus Christ and his word, which is clear and objective. I'm sorry, the Christian faith is not this wishy-washy thing. It's clear and objective. Now, um, let me let me look at the time here. Um, um, should the creeds be updated? Probably yes. 
is his answer to that. So the creed should be updated. Probably yes. I'll give two examples here. First, notice that since the early church was especially worried over the two natures of Christ, basically how could Christ be fully God and fully human? That's the Athanasian creed, which represents this. The creed ends up emphasizing this part of our understanding of Jesus, and unfortunately to the exclusion of anything concerning his earthly life and ministry. No, I don't know what he's talking about here. So all the creeds skip straight from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now here, this is, um, sir, all you need to do is is read the Athanasian Creed. So the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed were not written to address this issue, this issue of the the relationship between the two natures of Christ was not hammered out till the Council of Chalcedon. And the Nicene or the Athanasian Creed is a is a the touchstone in your language of the Council of Chalcedon. So we shouldn't expect a full blown understanding of Christ's two natures. But that's not even what he's kind of talking about. He's saying, well, there should be more about the earthly life and ministry of Jesus because it skips straight from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, the Creed should be updated to um, here's him again. The Creed should be updated to include more of Jesus' actual life. We have a good model for this in Pope John Paul's updating of the rosary, adding the luminous mysteries, all focusing on the life of Jesus. Um, so um, I'll just leave that there. His, his, so do you believe in the luminous mysteries? Uh, do you believe, do you pray, pray the rosary, sir? Um, well, I don't even know what, I guess, you know, because the Catholics did it, we should do it too. Uh, many of these, many of these uh, ELCA types and Protestant liberals, they, they, they don't have anything bad to say about Rome. Usually Rome is, Rome is you know, well, I'm personally not Roman Catholic by conviction, but, you know, I don't have a problem with Roman Catholicism. Um, you know, this is, you know, you're a Lutheran, sir. Um, Luther <laughs> Luther would not recognize you as, as one of his um, disciples or followers um, if you speak that way about the Pope. I'll just say that. Uh, one prominent theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, has proposed an addition to the Apostles' Creed that I believe makes a lot of sense. He suggests that after born of Virgin Mary, or was made man in the Nicene Creed, we should add baptized by John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, to preach the kingdom of God to the poor, heal the sick, to receive those who have been cast out, to revive Israel for the salvation of the nations, and to have mercy upon all people. Now, you know, I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to this, but many men that I know who are you know, high churchmen in the Anglican tradition and Eastern Orthodoxy reform and, and Catholicism. Um, the reason why you can never add anything to these creeds is because they, they were settled by the ecumenical councils in the universal church, and there's no longer a universal church. Now, of course, Rome will claim that any council that they hold is ecumenical, but the Eastern Orthodox will immediately pop their head in and say, absolutely not, we were not at the council. So the Council of Trent, for example, is not an ecumenical council, although Rome will continue to do that. So the only way we could possibly change the apostles creed like this is we would have to convene an ecumenical council which isn't going to happen because the church has been divided um institutionally um, that's the first so, so i'm just giving you the argument of, of a, of a eastern orthodox or a catholic or a high churchman in the anglican tradition that, or even you know other reformed traditions too protestant traditions that would say you can't even you can't tamper with the creed not because these things might not be helpful to add but because it's a, it's an ecumenical council and it, and it's it is what it is um so you know i, I you know should, should we th this is where we can teach about christ's earthly ministry um and we don't have to change the creed this or something like it would be christ's earthly ministry central 
would would be Christ's earthly ministry central into our creeds and could have the net impact over the long term of moving Christian communities away from their tendency to abstract Christ into nat- notional positions quite distant from notional. When I first read that, I thought it said national. Notional positions quite distant from life and community and toward the kingdom. Okay, so I guess the this is the Protestant liberal kind of, well, Jesus, you know, he was with the poor and the sick, and he received those who have been cast out uh, to have mercy on all people. So it's kind of like Jesus is the social justice warrior. Is that what you're saying? I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this that's, that's what it kind of smacks of to me. Well, we need to talk about Christ's earthly ministry, not because, um, you know, of the, his objective work of, of, you know, living a perfect life in our place and um, it was a foretaste of the kingdom to come, all these miracles. Well, no, Jesus was also out there like a social justice warrior on the street, um, you know, having mercy upon all people. So Jesus didn't call people to repent and believe. He didn't warn them of the coming judgment and then they would be cast into outer darkness uh, because God is holy and they are sinful. He, he never did any of those things. Um, so, yeah, you know, you know, life in community and toward the kingdom. What's the kingdom? And that's that's another thing. Protestant liberalism, um, the kingdom of God. What does that actually mean? Similarly, there's a gap in the creed in this first article. There's no mention of Israel, nothing that brings anyone related to the Hebrew scriptures. The first articles, as currently written, focus exclusively on God as Father, of Jesus and creator of heaven and earth. Um, so, you know, the connection to Israel. Yeah, of course. Um, and... If you are in a tradition that takes the whole Bible seriously um, and understands covenant theology and understands um, that, you know, there's plenty of Christians who, um, apart from the creed, understand that we are um, standing on the shoulders of the uh, old covenant in uh, Israel and the Hebrew scriptures um, or the Old Testament, as it's more commonly referred to. Nothing wrong with these, those per se, but also nothing is there about God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not to mention Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Um, yeah, there were, <laughs> there were women, but what, I mean, I'm sure this guy is all about women's ordination and full-blown inclusion of women into every aspect of church leadership, et cetera, et cetera. No mention of the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so once again, sir, you're, 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 is a fundamental misunderstanding of the creeds. The creeds are, were not written to be a comprehensive understanding of the Christian faith, especially Nicene and Athanasius. Now, the Apostles' Creed has a different history because we don't have the, it wasn't like um, written at a council. The Apostles' Creed is a tradition that developed because uh, candidates for baptism needed to be taught the, the touchstones, as you, as you rightly say, of the Christian faith. Uh, but the Nicene Creed, is not supposed to be this comprehensive statement of all these things. Um, the church fathers would have certainly, uh, who were at Nicaea, would have certainly understood, yes, uh, we understand the Shema and the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we understand the, the Hebrew scriptures, etc., etc. But what they were doing is they were addressing Arianism, and they were doing the very thing that you say we shouldn't do. They were excluding people from the church who held false doctrine, who were denying Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, which is a key Christian doctrine, a key biblical doctrine. Okay, so you're just misunderstanding the purpose of the creeds. The purpose of the creeds are exclusionary. 
And many people don't like that because they don't want to be exclusionary in their own practice of ministry. But um, although all ministers end up being exclusionary in some way, shape, or form when certain people enter the church. Um, so you have to exclude. Everyone excludes. It's just what's your threshold of exclusion and then what's your value of doctrine in the Christian faith. Okay, we're almost done here. Any update of the creed in addition to adding the life of Jesus could find a brief Way to break with the general supersessionist tendencies of Christianity and recognize God's long and loving relationship with Israel. The story that is fertile soil for all things Christians confess in their creeds. Okay, so now here's the real reason why he he is advocating this. He thinks Christians are uh, supersessionist, which is saying that you know the church replaced Israel and that Israel as a nation, the ethnic Jews, have no purpose in God's plan anymore, which I don't personally believe that. Uh, but I don't think adding these things to the creed would solve that problem personally. Um, but once again, the creeds were not given for this purpose. Um, so, I mean, I would wonder what this guy's political position is on the nation of Israel, because if he, um, you know, a lot of Protestant liberals want to talk about how they care for Israel, but are you going to vote for a democratic candidate who is going to tell Israel they need to make deals with terrorists? Um, so that, that, I know that's controversial, but, uh, you know, anyway, Finally, I might argue our work in the 21st century is not so much to dis disavow creedal Christianity and to shift to simply living as church, but rather consider ways to bring our creeds into more consonance with the commitment to justice and peace centered in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So these are buzzwords, uh, justice and peace centered in Jesus Christ. Uh, what does that mean, sir? Are you into social justice? Are you into... Um, these kind of critical race theory type things. We don't know. He doesn't say in this. Um, these are buzzwords. These are loaded. You got to be very careful when you hear people start talking like this, justice and peace centered in Jesus. Well, what does that actually mean? Um, so, you know, are we bringing our creeds into consonance with, with, with what, with what exactly? It doesn't say, I don't want to speculate, but, um, one such fitting creed spoken by Dorothy Solel in Cologne, Germany in 1968, never heard of her, of political evensong can serve as one excellent example. As an invitation to everyone reading this to look to the creeds as touchstone and inspiration rather than exclusionary fence and conversation stopper. <coughs> well, they don't have to be a conversation stopper. And if you're saying that there's very mean-spirited, nasty, fundamentalistic in a negative sense Christians out there, who can't even like hold a conversation with someone who says, you know what, I, I don't really believe in the virgin birth. <gasps> oh my gosh, you don't believe in the virgin birth? That's so crazy. I reject you. Like, yeah, I, I agree. I don't like those people either. I, I, I would, as a pastor, say you need to calm down and be loving and gracious toward people who differ from you and learn how to be winsome and loving and win them over to your position. Um, so I agree with that. They shouldn't be conversation stoppers, um, but they should be an exclusionary fence. Absolutely. The creeds are an exclusionary fence, sir. You are not doing your job as a pastor. If you are excluding, if you are saying, I don't exclude anyone, you know, but there's plenty of people in my church deny the virgin birth. Deny the resurrection. They, they say those things didn't happen. But you know, they're still part of our church. They're still members in good standing. Sir, you are not doing your job as a pastor to protect the flock. I'm sorry. I mean, we're getting real basic. I wonder what your view is on, you know, let's go back to this. I mean, this is just basic Catholic Christianity here. I mean, you know, 
the canon and the creeds and the Trinity, the deity of Christ, person of Christ. I mean, well, you know, these things, you know, they're exclusionary fences. No, sir, this is the heart of the Christian faith. And then if we get into evangelical, I mean, I, 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 I hesitate. I don't maybe don't want to know what you, your view is of the Protestant Reformation and sola scriptura, sola fide, solus Christus. Um, all the things I love about the Lutheran tradition, the, the uh, imputation of Christ's alien righteousness. And he's, you know, I, I would be shocked if you believed in propitiation. You probably say, no, that's, you know, the moral monster thing, cosmic child abuse, that Jesus actually suffered the wrath of God that I deserve in my place on the cross. Whether you would say, yeah, that's good. We don't believe any of that stuff. And then, God forbid, we get into tulip and Calvinism. Um, you know, wow, that's great. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but certainly historically speaking, it's indisputable. The Nicene and Athanasian creed were exclusionary fences. They were documents that were written with the specific intention of dealing with the Arian heretics and in the, in the Chalcedonian, the, the monothelites and the, um, you know, Eutychians and, you know, all these, those different issues of the, the two natures of Christ and how they relate to one another. Um, and I guess we could read this credo thing. It's, it's kind of weird. I mean, this is just, this is liberalism in action. So here's the creed that we should have, which is just so, it's so weird. I'm just, let's just read it. It's just weird. Credo. I believe in God who created the world, not ready made like a thing that must forever stay what it is who does not govern according to eternal laws that have perpetual validity, nor according to natural orders of poor and rich, experts and ignoramuses, people who dominate and people subjected. I believe in God, who desires the counter-argument of the living and the alteration of every condition through our work, through our politics. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was right when he, as an individual who can't do anything just like us, worked to alter every condition and came to grief in doing so. Looking to him, I discern how our intelligence is crippled, our imagination suffocates, and our exertion is in vain because we do not live as he did. Every day I am afraid that he died for nothing because he is buried in our churches, because we have betrayed his revolution, and our obedience to and fear of the authorities. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was resurrected into our life, so that we shall be free from prejudice and presumptuousness, from fear and hate, and to push his revolution onward and toward his reign. I believe in the Spirit who came into the world with Jesus, in the communion of all peoples, and our responsibility for what will become of our earth, a valley of tears, hunger, and violence, or the city of God. I believe in the just peace that can be created and the possibility of a meaningful life for all humankind in the future of this world of God. Amen. <coughs> Let me say to you that those at the Council of Nicaea would have no earthly idea what that just meant, as, as I don't. Um, so, I mean, this is, you know, the, 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 our, our forebears are uh, rolling over in their graves or um, looking down from the great heavenly court and saying, what? This is what we um, had our eyes gouged out for and limbs cut off for and thrown to the lions for? Is this type of this type of gobbledygook? No. I mean, you know, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, look at look. Let, let's take seriously that you know the, the tradition holds that there was a there was a bishop at Nicaea who had no arms and legs and was blind from persecution for holding to the Orthodox faith, and we want to say, well, you know, that's you know, that's it's, it's, it shouldn't be a exclusionary thing. It shouldn't be. It should it should just be a touchstone. No, 
Men shed blood for the doctrine of the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ. I mean, even in the Bible, look at the book of Acts. What were they being persecuted for? Proclaiming the resurrection of the Son of God. For for them, it was not just, it was exclusionary. It was the faith. It was what they went out and preached that Jesus Christ actually bodily rose from the dead. So uh, I just wanted to review this article because it was making the rounds and I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about Um, Because on this broadcast, we talk a lot about Calvinism and Reformed theology, and I want to be a little more broad and address other topics. And this is more of a Protestant liberal topic, um, dealing with Protestant liberalism, Mr. Uh, Schneckloth. And um, just, just, you know, just beware of this type of stuff. I mean, just beware of this type of stuff and and just this this slow eating away of uh, basic Catholic Christianity. Um, So... Thanks for joining me today in this edition of Apologetics from the Attic. Check out the website, apologeticsfromtheattic.com, um, for, for material there uh, that I try to release on a regular basis. And just thanks for joining me again. God bless.